You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. We come to you this morning expecting to have to pay our way and Yet we come with nothing. And what we find is a, an altar covered with blood, but not ours. But we come before you, a holy and righteous God, welcomed in because Jesus, our Savior, has made it possible for us to do that. So I pray that our hearts would be released to worship, full of gratitude as we gaze upon the, the beauty of Jesus crucified and risen, that you'd strengthen and build up and equip your people this morning through your word. Would you help me to faithfully handle your word and make our hearts ready to receive what you have for us, for your glory, for our good. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have seat. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, it's my uh, joy to continue with you in the Psalms. This is the, the third and, well, at least for now, according to the schedule, uh, you won't hear from me again until the end of the Psalms. you hear other voices, but today you get me. So there you go. Psalm 44 is where we are. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles open to Psalm 44 if you need a Bible. Um, some folks, Joe and Aiden, looks like they're coming around and can get you one so you can follow along. I said this to open our series uh, in the Psalms just a few weeks ago, that the Psalms are, are kind of a playlist for God's people. What I mean by that is Psalms are songs and, and poems to be recited and sung by God's people. There's a remembering for us and a reminding one another of who God is, of what God has done. The Psalms anchor us, as all of Scripture, but the Psalms maybe particularly anchor us to things that are true about God, things that are true about God's purposes in this life for His glory and for our joy. And all throughout the Psalms, there are, there are praise songs, there are songs of lament and grief, there are songs of confession, there are songs of public declaration. Psalms are indeed a playlist for God's people. But today, I want us to also see psalms as provision for us, much like all of God's Word and maybe specifically the psalms. And and here's what I mean by that, that in this life that we live, the psalms sometimes uniquely provide insight in how to navigate this life. In light of who God is, in light of what God has done, in light of all that he's promised that he's going to do, in light of all of that, how do, we de- how do we then live and navigate this life that God gives us for his glory? And so I think the Psalms are one of the ways that God provides help for us. Instruction is woven into these poems and these songs for us. And Psalm 44, like 43 and 42 before it, Psalm 44 is a psalm of suffering. So, not only 
is Psalm 44, a song, if you will, in our playlist that we can sing in the midst of suffering, because it is, and we'll talk more about that. But Psalm 44 also is teaching us some things, if we have ears to hear, something about suffering, and something about suffering in light of who God is and who we are as God's beloved people. Now, as I mentioned, Psalm 44 is a, is a suffering, it's a lament psalm. And let me just say that there are times in our lives when suffering and pain make sense to us. Not always, but sometimes there are. Let me give you a real kind of low-level basic example of when suffering does make sense. Suppose you haven't really done a lot of physical activity, physical exercise in, say, a decade. And under conviction of the Holy Spirit to be a better steward of the body that God has given you and the life that he's provided, you decide, I should do something about that. And then after three or four sessions, you wonder why your legs don't work right going up and down stairs, right? You know why, right? I know why. Haven't used those muscles in a while, right? There's a pain that we experience, but we understand the why. We know the reason. I know why I'm experiencing this temporary physical discomfort. And to be totally honest, that's a pretty low-level, low-hanging fruit, easy example. Let me give you something a little more serious. So about four years ago, my dad passed away from cancer, and there was a seven-year window between his diagnosis and his death. And during that window of time, he had various treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, various things, and some of it was remarkably difficult, and often he hated those windows of treatment. But it was doing something, right? And that treatment gave us seven more years with my dad, which I'm grateful for. So even if the cancer didn't make sense, the hardship of the chemo or the hardship of the treatment made at least a little bit of sense. And some of you this morning have walked a similar path of pain. There's lots of treatments, uh, chemo and immunotherapies for things like cancer. There's there's transplants or, or joint replacements that come with pain and fatigue and difficulty, Right? Often they come with complications. But in many ways, we're not surprised by that kind of pain because we're prepped for it. The doctors literally tell us, this is going to stink a bit. This is going to hurt. This is going to make you tired. This is going to make you sick. This is going to be difficult for you. And we go, okay, I can endure this because I understand it's doing something. It's worth it for the eradication of the cancer. It's worth it to have limbs that work better, or organs that function, right? Enduring pain for what we're hopeful is a better long-term outcome. So some suffering, some hardship, some pain we can make sense of. But not all the time. Some suffering doesn't make sense to us. When we don't fully understand what it is God is up to in our pain, And that particular suffering is what Psalm 44 is getting at and focused on. The suffering that doesn't make sense. So here's our big idea from Psalm 44 today. When suffering doesn't make sense, Psalm 44 is instructing us, it's helping us, it's teaching us to not look to ourselves and to our circumstance, but to look to God who is good and is doing good. Let me say this again. When suffering doesn't make sense, 
We look not to ourselves and to our circumstance, but to God who is good and is doing good. And we'll unpack that as we go. Let's read our text first, Psalm 44. I invite you to read along in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us today from Psalm 44. We'll read the whole, the whole chapter. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's holy word for us today. As I mentioned, the theme of Psalm 44 is suffering, it's lament, it's grief in the midst of hardship. And what maybe you heard and saw as we read through the passage was all the times the psalmist used the word you. Did you pick up on that? Over and over and over again in Psalm 44, the psalm declares, you, God, you gave us victory in the past. You give us victory in the present. This is all by your hand, not ours. And it is also 
You, God, you have laid your hand heavy on us, and we are broken. And the prayer at the end, would you, our God, come to our help and save us? Maybe you can see now where I pulled kind of that that big idea for this morning from this text. Let me say it again. When suffering doesn't make sense, we look not to ourselves and to our circumstance, but to God, who is good and is doing good. And so Psalm 44, I want us to see it today as a help for us. I think this has the potential to be pretty formative for us as we follow Jesus. So here's the first thing I see where Psalm 44 might be a help to us. God's people in Psalm 44 are full of gratitude for God's past goodness. They're full of gratitude for God's past goodness. Verses 1 through 3 are essentially a recounting of God's past victory. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. Now, now Psalm 44 doesn't speak to a particular victory. It's not, a, it's not referencing a particular battle or where they conquered a particular people. Essentially, it's speaking to all the times when God fought for his people, when God defended uh, his people, when he defeated their enemies so that they might live secure and at peace in the place that God has promised. It's the recollection of our, my grandfather told my father, who told me of what you did for them. And the psalm makes it clear. It wasn't by the power of their own swords or the strength of their own arms. Verse 3, it was actually the right hand of God and the light of God's face. Referencing God's might and His glory were on display in all of their past victories. And then Psalm 3 closes with, or excuse me, verse 3 closes with an assurance but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Let's continue. Verse 4. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now notice the change from God, we've heard what you've done for us collectively. And then the psalmist here in the middle changes the direction from corporate to individual. You are my king, he says. And I think part of what's happening here is a personal heart check as God's people sing this song together. This is directed to the choir master. Attributed to the sons of Korah, this, a large section of this chunk of Psalms is attributed to them. This is meant to be sung and recited corporately. These are promises for us. And in the midst of those promises for us, the psalmist also says, and you're my king. And this is important. Because right here in verse 4, we have a personal application of a corporate covenant. Psalm 44 is saying, God has done mighty things for us but I am not only a partaker of these promises by proximity. Like, I grew up in the right family. I have the right name. Verse 4 says, you are my king, O God. I want you to hold on to that. We'll come back to it in just a moment. The gratitude continues. Not only for what God has done in the way back past for our fathers, but also for what God has done for us here in the present. Look at verse 5. 
It's not just what we heard you have done in the past, what you have done for us here. Verse 5, through you, God, we push down our foes. That is present tense language. God, you've been faithful in the past and you're faithful to us even now. And watch the parallel. Look at verse 6. Even in my current victories, I don't trust in my bow. My sword can't save me. Verse 7, you have saved us, kind of present, from our present foes. So, So here's the progression. Our fathers didn't trust in their swords. They used their swords. They didn't trust in them. You saved them by your own hand. We aren't trusting in our swords. We use them. We don't trust in them. You save us by your own hand. And so their boast was in your name, and our boast is in your name. Now, as an exercise, if you were to take a a blank page from the back of your notebook and just start listing the things that God has done, thinking as far back as you can remember in your personal life and even back generationally, what would be on your list of God's past faithfulness? I've thought about that this week. If I were to make a list, one of the things that would be on that list would be my grandmother on my dad's side. She endured a pretty remarkable amount of hardship in her life and yet had a deep an enduring faith in Jesus that was passed down to my dad and which was passed down to me. She spent herself in service to others and the Lord gave her many victories in the midst of some really terrible things and terrible griefs. So that would be on my list. What are some of the things and people on yours? Maybe more recently, What things has God done in your life that you can remember that must be from him? Not your bow, not your sword, but only by the hand of the Lord. Can I just encourage you this week on your own in quiet time or sit down with your spouse or your kids around the the dinner table sometime this week? Just a blank sheet of paper and just write down as many things as you can, can think of recounting God's Faithfulness. That just might be a good exercise for us. Now, before we move on to the second thing this psalm provides for us, look at verse 8. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. There's a hard thing in that verse, and it's two words give thanks. I won't put this on you. You can take this for what it's worth. Thanks is sometimes hard for me. If you want to relate and agree with me for yourself, that's great. It's one thing to remember what God has done. It's another thing to be thankful for those things. And I think one of the reasons it's hard for us to give thanks, why gratitude to God in the midst of trial is difficult for us, relates back to verse 4. Remember I told you to, to hold on to that? When our list is merely an exercise in family history, it's just a neat, cool story. But when our list traces a pathway of God's faithfulness through generations that's continuing now in my life, whether that's family or whether that's a friend or someone else who shared the gospel with you, 
You can still trace that back. And when I see that God is working out his promises for generations and I get wrapped up in that too, then my response is more readily, you are my king and my God. I'm not in just by association, but that because you delight in your people, that means you delight in me and you're working in me and I am filled with gratitude because your faithfulness extends to me. And then at the end of verse 8, there's this word that we see in the Psalms, Selah. When we see that in the Psalms, it's a pause, a time for reflection, and it's appropriately placed here in Psalm 44. This is the only one here in Psalm 44. For the first few verses are an encouragement of, of gratitude, God's past faithfulness, His goodness, His victory, right? You're like, this doesn't sound like a psalm of lament. Just wait, because now the psalm takes a pretty hard turn. So if the first help for us, instruction, teaching for us from Psalm 44 is is a stirring of gratitude to God for all of his past goodness, the second takeaway for us is this, plan for pain. I know that might sound cynical, and if you've known me for a while, you know I am a recovering cynic, and I don't use that lightly. I have to fight that tiny little cynic that has far too much power inside of me often. And I wait for the day when I'm freed not only of this mortal body, but also that tiny cynic with a loud voice. But this isn't cynical. Point two is not a cynical point. I think it's actually solid biblical wisdom to expect trouble, to anticipate difficulty, to plan for pain. Look again at our psalm. Psalmist says things like, as a people, we've been rejected. We live in disgrace. We've had to turn back from battle in retreat. We are like scattered sheep. We've been sold for a trifle. Think of it this way. Priceless painting sold at a garage sale for a dollar. That's what this picture is. Something with insurmountable value is just given away. Verse 13, we are taunted, we're derided, our neighbors look upon us with scorn. That doesn't sound fun. Verse 14, we're a byword among the nation. We are a second thought, a laughingstock. Our enemies take from us and we do nothing about it. We live in disgrace and shame. This is not the picture of joy and fruitfulness. This is actually the short end of the stick. This is difficult and trying. And if we're honest, this doesn't seem fair, does it? But I don't know if you saw what I saw in verses 9 through 16. There's no mention yet of why. We often go in the midst of hardship, why is this happening? They might get there. We're not getting there yet. They don't talk about the why. They don't question the why. But they are absolutely certain of the who. And this makes us a little uncomfortable. Because the who in verses 9 through 16 is God. Psalm 44 squarely points the source of their difficulty 
at God himself. You have rejected us. You have made us turn back. You've made us like sheep who are scattered. You sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. Now, this can make us uncomfortable for two very different reasons. One of the reasons that we read a passage like this and it kind of bristles us and we're like, sure, mm, I don't know if I like that, is because it kind of sounds like they're kids talking back to their parents, and we just don't do that, right? I mean, it almost sounds as if they're leveling the blame back at God. Like, you used to be cool, like when you rescued us and brought us to this place and freed us from oppression, but now you're lame, so we don't like you anymore. So now we're going to blame you, God, for all the things that we're experiencing. We are victims of God's unfair judgment. It could sound like that when we read something like this. Now, I don't think that's the intention of Psalm 44, but I think that's where our hearts go, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't think Psalm 44 is claiming some kind of victimhood with God as the oppressor, and we'll see why in a minute. So hold on to that. So that's one reason we feel uncomfortable when we read this, like, ooh, don't blame God. But the other reason it makes us feel uncomfortable is because sometimes our view of God is shaped in such a way that says, well, we are sure that God is good. We are sure that God is loving. Therefore, he would never let anything bad happen to people he loves. So if bad things happen to presumably good people, then it clearly can't be God. So I don't know what Psalm 44 is even talking about. The challenge there is that's not at all how God's revealed himself in his word. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the creation of all that we know that exists starts with this. In the beginning, God. There's none before him. There's none above him. It's him. And the Apostle Paul writes of Jesus Christ, the eternal son, second person of the triune God. In Colossians chapter 1, he says this, all things Let me reiterate that. All things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not just created things like earth and trees and water and atmosphere and planets. All things. So from front to back, God is revealing something about himself. He is above and over all things. He holds all things together, which means nothing, nothing gets past him. God doesn't have hands like we have hands, but nothing slips through God's fingers. Lord over all means Lord over all, which is why we can read in a passage like Job chapter 1, when he literally watches his family die in front of him. Job can say this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Job says that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So I think for us, part of the takeaway of Psalm 44 is this, that we are likely to experience a whole host of trouble 
Rejection and loss and grief and shame and broken relationships and sickness, even facing death. And the vehicles for that pain might come through the faulty cells because creation is broken because the sin of our first father, Adam, we bear that in creation. So we have cells in our body that do their own thing. That happens. It might come through people who seek to do us harm or through others who might reject us for any number of reasons. We're going to come back to this point in a minute, but you can write it down. You will experience this kind of grief. And so I think it's actually a kindness of Psalm 44 that says, plan for pain. Anticipate it. Now, remember how I mentioned that Psalm 44 hasn't yet talked about the why? Why all this is happening? Let's keep reading. Here's the third help here. The benefit of a clear conscience. Look at verse 17. Psalmist says, all this has come upon us. All of this terribleness in verses 9 through 16. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. There are lots of things that happen to us and we're like, in our lives? Lots of things that happen to us in our lives and we know why they happen. They are the consequences of our own actions. And if we're honest, we're like, I really did that to myself. Right? Here's the challenge. Psalm 44 is not that. It's not that. That one makes sense. This doesn't make sense. God's people are crying out here and saying, hey, we know we're not perfect. Like, we need to be careful to understand God's people are not claiming sinless perfection here. But what the psalmist is saying is that in this moment, in this scenario, we are not being punished for some unforeseen sin or some wickedness that we've performed or some worship of false gods. That does happen in Israel's history, does happen in, God's, in the history of God's people. What they're saying here is, right now, we are bearing the weight of God's hand in judgment for things we don't know. I mean, if we had been unfaithful, verses 20 and 21, if we had been unfaithful, God, you'd know because you see everything, right? Nothing is hidden from you. But here, God's people are standing broken, unsure as to why, covered, as verse 19 says, with the shadow of death. Now we really get into the suffering that doesn't make sense. And maybe you've stood in that place where you are broken and you are hurting. Maybe you're sick. You're facing it physically. Maybe you're facing the sting of death and you're going, I have no idea why this is happening to me. And so there might be a little bit here where verse 17 and uh, in through 22 might sound a little bit like kind of self-defense or, 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 or defensiveness, maybe some complaining, but I don't hear it that way. I think what's happening here in the psalm is an honest push, a leaning into a clear conscience before the Lord. Do you know what I mean when I say a clear conscience? It's the request of David in Psalm 139, where David cries out, Search me, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. He's not saying, bring it on, try me. He's saying, expose my heart, and if there's any way in me that is 
unrighteous, cleanse me of it, do away with it, that I might stand open-handed and clean before you, O Lord. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a clean and a clear conscience before God. It's why we take communion regularly here at River City, why we take it weekly. It's an opportunity for us to stand before the Lord, looking upon the death and resurrection of Jesus and say, I know that you are faithful to forgive, and so I can confess my sin, knowing I don't stand in judgment, but Christ took my judgment, and so I can stand and be washed clean. My sin is paid for, my conscience is clear. So what Psalm 44 is not saying is, hey, this isn't fair because we're innocent. They're saying, God, we've not forgotten you. It's still about you. We know you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. We've not been false to your covenant. They're crying out. If one needs clean hands and a pure heart, as Psalm 24 says, that we need clean hands and a pure heart to go before God, then they're saying, we want clean hands and we want a pure heart. And this is the suffering that doesn't make sense. They love the Lord. They're walking according to God's instruction, and yet they are experiencing deep, deep suffering. Maybe you felt that when in your grief you were just as a, at a loss as to why. So knowing that God has been good to their fathers, remembering that God has been good to them, And coming to God with open hands and hearts that desire to be clean before him, they cry out. And this is the fourth help from Psalm 44 for us. Desperate devotion. Look at verse 26. This is the crux of their prayer, their their desperation. Rise up, come to our help. That's the prayer. It is six words of awesomeness. That's it. It's simple. It's simple. It's a a great six-word prayer. Rise up, come to our help. Martin Luther once uh, wrote in one of his commentaries, said, in short, one should pray short, but often and strongly. For God does not ask how much and long one has prayed, but how good it is and how it comes from the heart. Let me just say, this is a good prayer. It's a strong prayer. And I want you to hear this morning that you and I have biblical permission to cry out to God for help in all pains, big and small. And the simple prayer of help is sufficient. I don't know if you need to hear that this morning, but maybe you you need to have permission to just say help. And verses 23 through 25 actually give us some insight. Before they pray that prayer, Some of the fears of God's people come to the surface, and I resonate with each one of them. Now, they're asking God for help, but you can see the things they're afraid of here in these verses. They're thinking, maybe, verse 23, is God sleeping? Is he he asleep? Has he rejected us and just said, that's it, I'm going to bed? But they've forgotten that Psalm 121 says, the one who keeps you will not slumber. They're worried maybe that God has turned his face away from his people. Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction? 
but they've forgotten that they're actually the recipients of the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6, where Aaron blessed the people in what was intended to be like a a rippling blessing, a perpetual sort of blessing that the Lord would bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. That he would lift his countenance, his gaze upon you, that you would have peace. That that promise is theirs as well. Verse 25, perhaps they're worried that like the serpent in the garden, they have been cursed. That the suffering they're experiencing is proof that God has cursed them and so they will lie bellies down eating dirt and dust like the serpent. And so they cry out. I just want you to hear that this is, a, this is not a, a ho-hum kind of prayer. This is a prayer of desperation. Help us. Redeem us. And notice what they don't say. What they don't say, they don't say, God, you owe us. We've been good. They're not cashing in their law-keeping chips here. They also don't say that, you know, God, this just doesn't seem fair. Why do wicked people succeed and we have to suffer? They don't. Psalm 44 says, redeem us, which is salvation language. Save us. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. Essentially this. God, put your steadfast love on display in showing mercy to your people. So like all of life, both joys and sorrows, Psalm 44 begins and ends with God. And I think the key to unlocking this Psalm is verse 22. No, I did skip it, but not on purpose, and here we're coming back to it. Psalm 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, sheep, in our context, are not nearly as prolific as they were in the ancient world. For us, the equivalent would be we are like cattle to be turned into ground beef. That would be a, a modern-day equivalent. Sheep for the slaughter were just sheep that were bred for destruction. That was their usefulness. Food, right? And the psalmist says, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And as Nathan read earlier, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, in Romans chapter 8. And here's what's remarkable about this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously excuse me, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He continues in verse 
37. No, Paul says, in all these things. In what things? It, well, in, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in all the griefs and trials of Psalm 44, in rejection and disgrace, in retreat. And for us, in cancer, in broken relationship, in pain, Paul says, no, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Psalm 44 and Paul in Romans 8 are making the same claim that the sufferings that God's people experience are not disconnected from the hand of the Lord working out the will of God in us for his glory and for our good. Now, the sons of Korah did not know his name, but Paul says that the hope, the thing that they were praying for, the steadfast love of God in redemption was answered in Jesus. They didn't even know they were asking for him, but that's who they got. And so for us, the Father has answered this prayer and has made provision for us through Jesus. And here's the hard part for us, is that you and I are conformed to, are shaped into, more into the likeness and image of Jesus through suffering. You and I look more like Jesus, and the way in which we look more like Jesus through time is through suffering. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul says this, For, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Note, not telling God you owe me because I've been a good boy. It's not how this works. Verse 10, Paul continues, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what any means possible means? It means any means possible. It means without limit, full send. If I get the resurrection from the dead, then whatever it takes to get me there, I want that. So Paul says, so that I might know personally, deeply, intimately, that I might know the power of the resurrection. Because it's that resurrection power that actually sustains us in the midst of the suffering we experience in this life. And we get this little glimpse of the resurrection power on full display that when this life is over, and our enemy, the devil, thinks he's won because he's killed us with whatever it is that shortens life, cancer or natural disasters or accidents or whatever. And so instead of him receiving the spoils, which is what he thinks happens as our enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, he's expecting the glory from putting down one of God's children 
but instead he's the one who's covered in shame because the promise for those who are in Christ is that we will rise victorious because death can't hold us either because we can't die because our good father has answered the prayer for redemption in Psalm 44 by sending Jesus to be our redeemer. So now you might listen to a message like this or read a text like this and say, that's good and all, but I'm not sure how it applies to me. Particularly if you're younger and you just, I mean no disrespect, you just haven't lived a lot of life yet. Please don't hear that as an insult. I heard Pastor Matt Chandler, he's the uh, pastor in Texas and the president of our church planning network, said one time that one of his jobs as a pastor is to help his people suffer and die well. So there's a preparatory aspect of Psalm 44 that's at work here. So my encouragement to you this morning, afternoon, is to see Psalm 44 as both a provision for you, maybe in preparation for the suffering you've not yet had to endure, and also that we would add Psalm 44 to our playlist of personal worship. See, as a provision, it's a call to remember the immeasurable faithfulness of God and to ask the Holy Spirit to make our hearts grateful for it, to not be content to just be adjacent to God's people and kind of mooch off the promises from a distance, but to be able to, with your whole heart, to declare that God is your king too. To plan for pain, not as a cynic, but as someone in whom God is building endurance so that every trial then becomes an opportunity for God to put his mercy on display in your life. And that you and I might walk with a clear conscience, humble and open-handed, declaring that the Lord is our king and desiring, actually wanting, that he would peel away anything that would keep us from seeing him and knowing him. And that Psalm 44 would be a song that you and I would be able to sing with desperation so that we can sing and believe and maybe through tears pray some really difficult prayers. Like whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus, I want that. That's a hard prayer to pray. But I want us to pray it that whatever it takes so that I might know the power of Jesus' resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings and suffer with him because he suffered for my salvation, that I might be like him in his death so that I also might be like him in his resurrection from the dead, that we would want that full send. And I'm convinced I'm convinced, and I become more convinced with every trial, every day, every walking side by side, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, through tears with you all as we endure hard things. I'm convinced that nothing, and this isn't just religious platitude, this isn't like you have to say this, Jake, because you're the paid religious professional. No, I'm convinced that nothing, 
that there is no tribulation or cancer or persecution or wickedness in the world or danger or war. Nothing, including death, is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And I want us to sing that. Through tears, sing that. In our suffering, he has not left us. So hear this this morning. In your suffering, he has not left you. And even when it doesn't make sense, and might for the duration of our days not fully make sense, we are not defeated, but we have hope. Because we aren't looking only to ourselves, but we are able to look to God and know and believe that he is good and he is at work doing good. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray along with Psalm 45 or 44 that you would come to our help. That in your kindness you'd meet us in our place of need. Not waiting for us to get our act together, not waiting for us to show you our list of faithfulness, but to say, would you come to our help? Would you redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love? Would you wash us by your own blood, Lord Jesus? Father, for any of us here in this room who's who've been far too content being adjacent and not being in. Comfortable eating from the scraps around the table and yet not willing to call you king. Would you break that hardness of heart even this morning and bring salvation? And would you help us to sing of your goodness? Not a facade, not faking it till we make it, but maybe even through tears to confess you're good and you do good. Would you rise up and come to our help, Lord? Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Would you put your mercy on display here amongst us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.